Welcome to Midnight Conversations. I'm Anandan Ambikaraja. And my name is Stephen Banos. That's right. And today, today's a bit of a unique one, Stephen, I yep. think. It's a bit different to usual because usually we review the papers of other people. Mm-hmm. But uh, today we've got some the inside goss, the inside scoop of this, this week's paper. We sure um, do. I'm very excited <laughs> about this one, Anandan. Oh, glad you think so. <laughs> and, uh, having, having known you for, for quite a while, I never thought you would amount to much. But oh, okay. uh, today, wow. shots fired early. That was that was but uncalled for. <laughs> today we are we are uh, discussing a paper that you have contributed largely to. Yeah, and yeah, it's published. I mean, it's not just one that you've, you you wrote earlier. That's um, right. That's right. It is. Uh, it was published uh, just last week. So yeah. you know, within the week, I uh, we put out a media release. So every time I. I'm involved in a paper or I'm the lead author, you know, a lot of researchers, they work through the scientific process of, you know, you analyze, collect data, you analyze it, then you write a paper with the results that are interesting and useful to others and publish it. And then you just sort of cycle in that process. But I'm a big believer that the process sort of actually extends another step to the science communication aspect of, Mm. you know, talking to others. And that's why we do this podcast partly, but like also in terms of having information in the scientific realm, you know, translate to the public so that they're able to understand and be interested and engage. And I think that's what science is all about to some extent. Yeah. So, so that's yeah. that's what's going to happen today, basically, is that Anandin's <laughs> going to, to try and explain his paper to me. Yeah. Because I, I am not a science-minded person. Whereas no, you, Anandin, what's, what's, what's your background? What are your qualifications? Do you want to run that by us Yeah, happy in? to. So yeah. uh, my background, I did my undergraduate degree in neuroscience. And then uh, straight after that, I got a job as a science communicator. But throughout my undergraduate degree, I had uh, been working as a teacher to, like, you know, pay the bills and, and f- feed myself <laughs> and, and do things. And so as a result, I, I developed, like, this massive passion for teaching. And it was just something that I fell in love with. So after doing the undergraduate degree in a bit of science communication, I decided to go back and do a master's in teaching. And then I realized that to be a good teacher or to be the type of teacher that I envisioned myself to being, I, I required a few things. One was I felt like I needed to be a lifelong learner so that if the more that I know, the better my students will have in their classroom and the better experience. So I thought that's one thing. And the second thing is I felt like I needed to bridge the gap between high school and university. Sometimes it's it's quite a jarring experience and it, it, it can be thought of as like two separate experiences. So I thought that... Um, that needed to be bridged. So that's where the PhD came in. So that's where I've started the PhD, doing it in neuroscience, uh, looking at the brain and broadly how it changes as people age. And and uh, that's, yeah, where I am now. So I love teaching, but I also yeah. have now developed a, a passion for research and science communication comes back into it. So, yeah. Every time Madden stands in front of his class, he tries to stand and deliver them. How do I reach yeah. these kids? Well, yeah. Through, through. Usually, my my goal is <laughs> my goal is mostly if I can motivate a student, I think that's sort of the key because once I can motivate them to be interested, then they're motivated to keep learning. So that's sort of like there's no point if they are only engaged when I'm in front of them. It's mm. like if I can foster that engagement long term, that's the goal. So, I love it. Um, you certainly motivate me. 
Well, and in saying that, um, what, what's this paper about? Honestly, yeah, what, great what, what was the, what was the objective? So the main aim of this paper was to look at the association between fat mass and a region of the brain called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is really important because it's one of the parts of the brain that's affected in Alzheimer's disease. It's one of the first parts affected in Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's it's important in memory. It's actually important in uh, like spatial memory as well. There's a really cool experiment done on London taxi drivers. And what they did was they looked at the hippocampal volume, uh, so the size of this region in the brain, in London taxi drivers versus uh, normal people in the population who were not taxi drivers. And this was done back in the day before GPS and all that, you know, when they had, what what were they called? The Tom, not Tom Toms. It was a book. It was a book called The Thomas. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it was before our time. (laughs) It was was a book that had, you know, the map, essentially. And you use this book to, um, I'm pretty sure it's like a Thompson Guide or something. Listeners, please correct me or whatever this is. And the book has the map of, of the country. And you use this book, you know, if you don't know where to go, you pull over, you go to the page you want to go on to, and then you find the directions and you keep going. So unsurprisingly, London taxi drivers are great at navigation because they use this skill day to day. They have to go from point A to point B. So they are very, very good at this. And so what these researchers did was they put both these London taxi drivers and the general population in the MRI machine. So just to look at their brains. And they found that London taxi drivers had larger hippocampal volumes than the normal population. And that's because they're constantly using their hippocampus to, uh, you know, remember places, landmarks, features, all sorts of things. And that's that's sort of how they develop. So that sort of shows why the hippocampus is important and it's well, important for that type of memory. Kind of. But before we dig further into this paper, what, what does hippocampal volumes equate to? Are we talking about like more neural pathways or are we talking like... I don't know, what, more no, molecules yeah, or something they produce? You can leave it as, as sort of a measurement of size. So imagine okay. if uh, you're looking at the size of two people's bicep, right? So mm. the it's a muscle and you're trying to see which one is larger than the other. So you'd get, you know, uh, a tape measure and put it around the arm and then you'd wrap it around. You say, oh, this is the size. It's, you know, X number of centimeters. Um, yeah. So, or millimeters in your case, Steve. So, yeah. <laughs> in, uh, so, so you, you could do, you, you could do that. I'll just get you back from the starting. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so you could do that. And in the same way, you can think of the brain as a muscle and that size increases and decreases. And similar to a muscle, the more you use it, the larger it can get or the more it can work. And so, volume is a way that we can measure the size of the hippocampus and so mm. we think of that as the unit of measurement so that's why i was interested in the volume of the hippocampus it's sort of a you can think of it as a measure of the size of that muscle in the within the brain okay so i'll just think yeah. of it as bigger hippocampus more memory space Generally speaking, yeah. So this study didn't actually look at uh, whether those with larger hippocampus, uh, hippocampi had like uh, better memory performance, but other research has shown that uh, there is a, you know, relationship there with, you know, the bigger that muscle Mm. is, the the better you do in those memory tasks. Okay. So So dig into it then. Yeah. In saying that, so this, this study, that's partly the reason why we're so interested in the hippocampus in uh, these neuroscience studies. And so what, uh, this study did or what the interesting finding is from this study is they uh, <laughs> they me I guess me and, and, and colleagues are just so used to saying other people uh, the uh, what we did here is we compared 
different groups. We had looked at people who maintained a normal level of fat mass throughout their life. Um, and the age of the participants is like 40 to 70 years of age. So uh, we know that it, the things that changes that happen in Alzheimer's disease don't just happen in late life. They can happen actually decades earlier. And so some of the environmental or lifestyle factors that you engage in, smoking, drinking, all that stuff in your midlife can have an impact on your development of Alzheimer's disease. Actually, there was previous research which found that those who uh, had, were suffered from overweight BMI in the past uh, had a 35% increased w risk of developing Alzheimer's disease compared to those who had a normal BMI. So, uh, mm -hmm. That's, you know, partly why it's important to look at these changes in fat mass over time. And so we looked at those who had a normal BMI, a waist circumference, waist to hip ratio, all sorts of different measures. But you can think of a normal level of fat mass, those who were initially normal and then uh, at the follow-up assessment uh, became uh, overweight or obese. Then we looked at those who were uh, lost weight over the assessments and then those who maintained uh, overweight or obese status. And what we found was that uh, compared to those who had normal weight, those who were uh, suffering from overweight or obesity had smaller hippocampal volumes than those who were normal weight. But also, which was really interesting, was even when we compared two people who at follow-up seemingly were normal weight, those who were previously classified as overweight or obese had smaller hippocampal volumes than those who were normal weight. So even if, even if you look at two people who look identical in weight, uh, your past history of overweight or obesity can have an impact on your hippocampal volume. And that's sort of the, mm. the main summary of the, the, these findings. I mean, usually when we do this, we, we toss it up to questions. So I guess, Stephen, what, what are your yeah. thoughts? I mean, that's, I mean that, uh, it's a very interesting finding. So, I mean, like the guys on The Biggest Loser and stuff, that lo they're losing, you know, huge amounts of weight in a pretty short amount of time. Mm. Their uh, hippocampus is not growing in that, like at the same time as they're losing weight. Is, is essentially yeah, it, what, you're, it, what you're saying it, there. So. It's a good analogy, and I, mm. I think in some respects it's saying that you know this research. One thing to highlight isn't causal, so I, we don't know right. whether it's weight related to uh, smaller hippocampal volumes, or possibly those with smaller hippocampal volumes engage in more eating or poorer lifestyle behaviors. We're not sure, but it does mm. seem to uh, suggest that it may be the fact that. Uh, yeah, if you had overweight or obesity in the past, you are more susceptible to having a lower hippocampal volume. So as mm. you say, those in The Biggest Loser, um, it may be that the past history of overweight and obesity still has an effect on their brain health. So, yeah. Is, is it established knowledge or did this paper look at uh, whether there were larger hippocampal volumes in people that exercised more or were particularly fit? Yeah, great question. So uh, generally, to account for physical activity, what we did was we accounted for that statistically in our model. What that means is we uh, we were able to say that like these results aren't due to differences in physical activity because we accounted for that in our model. So um, yeah, we, we did account for that, um, and that's where these findings come from. So we accounted yeah, okay. for you know physical activity, uh, education's another one. You know, so, some people who um, are more educated may have larger hippocampal volumes than those uh, who are less educated. So we also accounted for that, um, and all all sorts of other factors as mm. well. So yeah, were, were, were you were you surprised by the results, or did you? I mean, you obviously had a hypothesis that kind of prompted yeah. this research but it, it was it was pretty surprising to be honest like mm -hmm. i was sort of expecting that there'd be a negative effect of overweight and obesity 
but mm. I didn't think that two things I found surprising. One was the fact, as I just said, like the history matters. Like if you've previously had overweight or obesity, that that matters. Mm. The second thing I found surprising was um, those who uh, gained weight. So over over time, they may have gained weight. That did have an effect, but it was uh, still the fact that those who lost weight had an effect was, was just it sort of did blow my mind. I was like, it took me a while to wrap my head around, like, what does this mean? Why is this the case? And then after a while, I was like, oh, maybe, well, if we think of the brain as a muscle, maybe it just didn't recover in time. You know, maybe it's it still had that uh, residual effect that's that's affecting it. So, mm. um, yeah. So, so, the, so I guess the bit that I'm struggling with, and you might not have the answers, but it's, it's right. why there is a relationship between fat and the hippocampus at all. That's that's an amazing question, and that's okay. that's one where we try to answer in this paper. But right. you're spot on. Why why is there this relationship between even fat mass and just the brain broadly? Um, there's a few lines of thought. One idea is that um, you know fat cells. Uh, think of fat cells in your stomach, uh, for example, but you know all over your body, but in your stomach, it's actually an organ which releases hormones and it can it, it can do um yeah it, it's an endocrine organ it can be thought of or endocrine cell which means that it releases hormones and the crazy thing about it is that sometimes when we have an accumulation of these fat cells it can release uh these inflammatory cytokines mm. so okay. what that means is that uh it's it's inflammation is generally bad uh for the body and this inflammation may be linked with changes in the brain. So the we call it systemic inflammation. That's inflammation happening in the body uh, may pass through to the brain and cause these effects on the brain. But really, it's an excellent question. We really don't know, like, well, what is this relationship? And it could be other things, like it could be multifactorial. Like when you gain weight or lose weight may have impacts on your, your heart health, your lung health, uh, your overall cardiovascular health. This could impact blood flow to the brain and nutrients going to the brain back and forth. So, you know, we try to account for these things, but the mechanism is, is really interesting. And that's where sort of the next stage of research needs to go into is like, what's going on here? So yeah. I'm, I'm super interested by inflammation and what it is, because it seems to be one of those things that like pharmaceutical companies especially seem to be like ramming down your throat is a thing that's wrecking your life. And like, we have the pill that's going to remove all the inflammation from your body and you're going to be yeah. a, a superhuman. But like inflammation is a natural bodily response. Of course. That yeah. I, I presume prevents like further injury or infection or something, right? And that's it. Like inflammation happens when your body is in response to some sort of acute stress. Mm. I think where inflammation becomes negative or not so good. So as you say, acute inflammation is a normal part of the body. It's just it's just how it responds to things in terms of trying to, you know, release these white blood cells or whatever it is to, to the side of infection to help it uh, regenerate or recover. But the where it becomes an issue is where it's this chronic inflammation. We have this inflammation happening for long periods of time. So mm. if we do think, and research has shown that obesity is, is linked to inflammation, and if this is chronic, uh, so you're uh, suffering from overweight or obesity for a long period of time, that's where it can link with uh, the negative consequences on brain health. So it may be mm. just, just the chronicity of it, like the duration of it. Um, so, okay. yeah, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah. Pretty no, not 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 to go too far off off the topic of your your paper, but do you know what what other uh, things are causing chronic inflammation? Uh, well, I mean, there's 
a number of things. I mean, I mean, chronic inflammation can be, as we said, is is natural part of the body. It can it can be an indicator of some sort of disease state. So if there's some sort of underlying disease that is triggering inflammation, that could be a possibility. If there's some sort of, you know, mechanism in cell repair that isn't happening correctly, then that could be inflammation that happens over a long period of time. But, you know, there's there's many, many things related to it. I actually read a paper mm. today that was looking at the effects of uh, all these lifestyle factors on COVID-19. So uh, the risk of hospitalization for COVID-19. And what that paper actually found was that uh, they looked at a certain inflammatory marker called um, C-reactive protein. And they found that those with high levels of C-reactive protein had higher risk of uh, admission to hospital due to COVID-19. So, you know, a lot of negative consequences associated with inflammation. Interesting. Because when, yeah. I, when I dislocated my shoulder not that long ago, I yeah. like did a bit of reading on how to recover quickly and everything kind of pointed towards reducing inflammation. And yeah. so I, I changed my lifestyle for a little while, like... I was eating a lot less meat, having a glass of red wine each mm. night, like doing some deep breathing and stuff, trying to reduce inflammation. My shoulder recovered pretty quickly. I haven't had any problems with it recently, but like, That's true. I mean, it's yeah. not a, I mean, it's not it, a controlled it, experiment. But <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and also another factor is uh, your age, right? Yeah. Like, so if you were 20 years older and mm. that same incident happened to you, I'd be curious to know how quick your recovery would have been regardless. So All right. In, in tw- 20, 20 years, years time? I'd, come I'd, on. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it, yeah. I think I think what's interesting is is the the idea that your history matters, right? Mm. Which which can be a depressing thought to some extent for those who have like, oh, you know, I've put my previous past of overweight or obesity behind me. But I think what this shows is that it's it's important to maintain a normal weight, and if you don't, try and get to a normal weight as soon as possible, and then maintain it. Mm. Um, but what do you think in terms of your history, your past health history? Do you feel like you're healthier now than in previous mm. years? Do you feel like, is there anything in your previous years that you feel would come back to haunt you? Oh, so many things added in. Where do I begin? <laughs> there was a massive yeah. pause there. And I was like, as I was asking that, I was like, ooh, is this too direct of a question? <laughs> I'm definitely healthier now. Yeah. There you go. Great um, way to praise it. Yeah, future, future thinking. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's been some dark periods of my life where mm-hmm. I've, uh, you know, eaten very poorly and just not slept in a drunk, yeah. copious amounts of alcohol. Would it be too far to stretch uh, the findings of your study to alcohol consumption? And now I'm making the assumption that alcohol is also linked to Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative diseases. Mm-hmm. I think that is that. I think, that yeah, I think there assumption? is research showing. Yeah, okay. yeah, there is research showing that. Yeah. So, do you think there's uh, like it's it's reasonable to extend the finding of your study to say like you know consuming copious amounts of alcohol you know in in your early life could uh, you know well, what, what, how, how do I say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, on your, on your it's we can't uh, draw that from these findings, but okay. it is an important question. And why it's important is is the same reason why in my in this study we actually adjusted for 
um, alcohol. So, the, you know, could mm-hmm. we accounted for the uh, use of alcohol in this study. And that that's exactly the reason why, because it has an effect on that relationship. But yeah, what, yeah. It, it, I don't know if I could yeah say anything in particular meaningful about alcohol use. But yeah, I, I think it, you should recklessly speculate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, <laughs> that's the way. That's the way. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I mean, that's mm. that's been the interesting thing about doing media around this is it's always about, you know, a lot of the reason why people don't communicate their findings to the public uh, is because of backlash from their own scientific audience. So whether you say something wrong incorrectly, there can be a lot of backlash. And the second thing is, you know, media in, in in how you deal with media, you don't have a lot of control over the messaging a lot of the time. You know, I try to say, look, if there's any quotes you're going to quote me on, can I have a look and make sure that, you know, everything's read correctly? And, and some journalists are happy to oblige, but a lot of them aren't very happy. They just want to get the story out as quickly as possible, which I can understand, um, which means that either I have to be extremely careful in how I talk and deliver and like present myself uh, or alternatively not engage, which is what a lot of scientists do. And I think what I've noticed is there's two key barriers from the public to engage in science. And you can correct me or add to this if, if you think differently. But I, I think one is, uh, th- firstly, there's the actual financial barrier. Some research isn't available uh, f- for the public. You have to be tied to an academic institution which pays these journal fees on your behalf and then allows you access to some of these research findings. So that's one thing. Um, and the second thing is, just the access to the language, right? The scientific jargon, which I'm sure you've experienced by reading like whatever, we've had 24 papers there, 25, whatever ep- no. episodes. And so- Reading is a strong word there, but yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I give you credit. You, you, do, you do your research. And I feel like uh, that can be a big access uh, barrier to a lot of people who are interested in this. A lot of people want to know what's what's the effect of weight on my brain. And, and this is what the findings show, but- um, it can be a big uh, barrier. So that's why I'm passionate about engaging in science. But mm-hmm. I have been, you know, not persecuted, but I have have had a, you know, talking to and this or that. And I've had, you know, I've learned over the over the years, but a lot of people just aren't willing to um, put that effort in with all these other pressures that we have with publishing, or, you know, and, and all these other commitments. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, this this paper and the findings are largely targeted at clinicians, are they not? Yeah, definitely. Mm. I think uh, it, the important thing is to, uh, if a clinician was to look at two patients and realize that both are seemingly normal weight, understanding that their past history of overweight or obesity has an impact is, is an important for them. But yeah. also, I think this paper is, you know, majority also for the scientists to understand why is this happening? Because mm. once we understand, as you say, why is obesity linked with brain health, the exact mechanism then we can translate those findings to be better for the public and better for you know people who suffer from Alzheimer's disease, all these sort of things. Uh, so has benefits beyond that. So. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So for the ordinary person then that's consuming uh, this this paper for yeah. our podcast, um, yeah. <laughs> what's what, what's the message? How do they prevent loss to the hippocampal volume? Yeah. <laughs> I mean. 
I think that a key takeaway, I mean, maybe not particularly from this paper, but in terms of how the hippocampus is affected and what the important thing is, it's to maintain a healthy weight. And if you're not there yet, try and get to a healthy weight. If you feel like you've been struggling, work with doctors, work with dietitians, work with people, even personal trainers or physiotherapists, they can all help you um, on your goal to weight loss. And, you know, everything helps to, to get to there. And I think that's that's a key takeaway. Um from from this paper and and mm. if if not that uh you know your brain health is is a holistic thing that isn't just dependent on obesity there's other factors such as exercise such as um the, you know knowledge that you consume whether you're you know doing things that are outside your comfort zone every time you're pushing yourself and challenging yourself you're getting better and stronger so i guess i my main message to anyone whenever i engage with the public with brain-related uh, research, especially my own, is the brain is a muscle, use it or lose it. So work hard on getting it bigger, work hard on, on challenging yourself, and, and that's that's my takeaway. So what's Beautiful. your takeaway, Stephen? What's, what's your what's your key takeaway from these findings? <laughs> what do you think um, of the author? What do you, what do you think of the study's quality? <laughs> yeah, look, I've got to say my key takeaway is that uh, you are good for something, um, which has far <laughs> exceeded my prior expectations of you, Anadin. Congratulations. Yeah, uh, no, this you. is this is your like third third or fourth published article. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. This is a Fantastic. third third paper related to the PhD. So I, I'm just having a good time. Like I'm my PhD has been a great journey of like learning. It's been really hard, lots of lots of stuff, but uh, yeah. I, I'm 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 loving it. So so, what's, I, so I, hopefully what's next? McDonald's don't, don't sue me for that. Oh. But <laughs> <laughs> well, the next thing is you know understanding more about this mechanism linking obesity to the brain. Maybe mm. I'm interested in midlife and things that happen at midlife. My previous papers were looking at menopause. So maybe something relating to menopause in the brain. Who knows? So, um, mm. well, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just enjoying research. But awesome. Stephen, yeah. in saying that, I mean, those are the main takeaways from this paper. I appreciate yeah. you taking the time to sit down and like, you know, talk about some of this, plug my own research. I mean, it's, it's, it's <laughs> great to do. I didn't have to read the paper for this week too closely because I've read it a lot. But in saying that, Stephen, mm. we have had a trend, right? With oh, this podcast. No. <laughs> <Not>. <laughs> Where, uh, you know, at the end of the end of the podcast, you, <sighs> you've done amazing things to send us out. You know, one week we had a rap. One week we had an out-of-tune guitar play us away. Yeah. Uh, I was just wondering, what mm-hmm. was going to be the magical way in which you, you say goodbye to the listeners today? I, I hadn't, I haven't thought of anything. Do you have any suggestions? Right. Uh I, I was I, I didn't I, I really <laughs> thought that I, I thought you'd be building is up. This week gonna on week. This is this going to bomb? Oh no! I, I think so. I think so. Me. There is some pressure. Um, oh, is that you juggling right now with ten balls in your hand? <laughs> That's so impressive. If only the listeners could see you juggling right now. But on that note, we right. do have. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna prepare for next time. Okay, yeah. that's a, that's wow. a promise. That's, that, to our that's a first. There's right. always, always <laughs> preparation. I know preparation is key. It's a no, word I look for. I look forward to it, um, and Stephen. You know, you know, I do love doing this because uh, in me putting all this emphasis on you putting uh, signing us out, I have no work to do <laughs> towards the end of the podcast. <laughs> so it's been great, um, and yeah. I enjoy seeing you squirm towards the end of the podcast. Oh, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll see it happen next week too. Thank you um, for this paper, Anna Danilo. No, I learned a lot. Thanks, I'm sure Stephen. our listeners did as well. Appreciate it. And if you have any questions, feel free to let us know, uh, especially about this paper. Happy to help you out uh, with yeah. any questions you have. And yeah. if not, you can send that to where they where can they send that to us, Stephen? Uh, any, any other questions? Midnight Conversations Podcast at gmail.com is the best mm-hmm. way to contact us. You can also find us at Midnight Conversations Podcast on Instagram. 
Yep. Uh, we have a Twitter as well, don't we? We do have a Twitter. Oh, jeez, he said that with a lack of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we do. We do have a Twitter. Very active. Once a week, we post out this yep. uh, podcast. Uh, hit us up on any of those mediums. But in saying that, thank you very much, Stephen Banos. Thank you, Anandin. <laughs> Mit 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 m